0: The time is now. Volume 7 episode 128 this is employment law now I am Mike Schmidt your host of the podcast and the vice chair of the labor and employment department here at Cozen O'Connor it is amazing to me that I was able to somehow get an active current EEOC commissioner onto the podcast even one time but multiple times being willing to come on to the podcast to give valuable insight to give thoughts on the direction of various hot issues of the day and to talk specifically about the inner workings of the eeoc to do that multiple times on the podcast beyond anything that i could have expected but eeoc commissioner keith sonderling has been so gracious to continue to come on to the podcast to do all of that And Today, he joined me again just to talk about one of the hottest issues these days, the use of artificial intelligence in employment-related decisions. Commissioner Sonderling, it is always my pleasure and honor to have you on. You're always so gracious with your time. Thanks for coming back.
1: Thanks for having me for my third appearance, which I think is going to be the um, record holder for most appearances by a government official, although General <laughs> Counsel Bruso is quickly catching up <laughs> to me.
0: Yeah, this guy. I love this little battle that you both will have. It just reminds me to bring pop culture into this. And you know, the Saturday Night Live—they make these big ceremonies for the five-time hosts, and they give these jackets. I'm going to have to start thinking about. Uh, giving out something or doing something uh, for you or General Counsel bruza. we'll we'll see how this goes. As
1: long as it works out with the government ethical gift requirements, of course. I want everyone to hear that you know we of course would abide by those gift rules.
0: Absolutely, and I will have my uh, huge employment law now staff uh, look into those rules to make sure we're current uh, with that. Um, but uh, all kidding aside, thank you so much for uh, coming back onto the podcast. My pleasure. So uh, this topic, uh, AI, continues to be a huge one, uh, and just when I feel like we've uh, exhausted all there is to talk about when you've been on before, there is so much going on, and I want to get into it. Uh, Let's start from the beginning, though, and for those who are new to the topic, uh, just a real brief description of what we mean when we talk about AI or artificial intelligence. We're obviously not talking about robots performing work for humans, right? Right.
1: That's right. And there's so much distraction originally related to um, everything in AI in the workplace about automation, about displacing humans in the workforce. Sort of now, like we're seeing in 2023, now the huge distraction is around chat GPT in the workforce, which does certainly have some workforce implications, but generally what you're seeing in the news around AI, around automation, around robots, around ChatGPT is not what we're going to specifically talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is the AI-driven HR technologies, which have really increased since the pandemic. And the reason that I'm talking about it, the reason the EOC is looking at it, the reason other government agencies are really honing in on HR AI is that it really has been involved in the decision-making Stage of the job lifecycle for years. So, most people don't realize it, but there's AI out there that writes job descriptions, screen resumes, chats with applicants, conducts job interviews, predicts if an employee will accept an offer, and then tells you how much you should pay that employee. And in some cases, tells you where that employee would be best within your organization. There's a lot of AI out there in the HR space now that's tracking productivity. There's even a new development of AI software that is related to your existing workforce. So a lot of people think of AI just for the hiring purposes, but there's AI that comes in and scans and use machine learning to look at all workers in your workforce and see if you have already the employees that may not be in the proper jobs for some of those job openings you have that you may be able to then upskill and reskill them or just completely place them in different positions. So there's AI out there that assesses employee sentiment. So every day it's looking at Slack, Teams, um, your Microsoft office to see what the employees, how they're feeling to see if there's a flight risk. Um, there's AI out there that then also does performance reviews that essentially manages employees and even algorithms out there that are terminating employees. And again, um, you could listen to our much longer podcast and all the the positive and potential um, unlawful uses of this uh, AI software. But for each of these tasks I mentioned, there's thousands of them. You could find a commercially available product right now, and you know here's what it's being pitched at. It's being pitched to employers to make these HR decisions more efficiently, economically, and effectively, especially in our space on the front end with hiring. A lot of these programs are promising diversity, equity, and inclusion by mitigating that workplace bias. So for HR professionals, for businesses, deciding whether or not to dive into AI in the HR space is no longer a hard choice. I have really said that for most companies at some point, and there's a pretty good SHRM study out there that dug into the statistics of how it's infiltrating HR and how it's going to continue to do so as far as the sheer market size of this. So at this point, it's not a question, are you going to use it in the workplace? It's about how are you going to use it and for what purpose and how do these longstanding laws apply to it? And That is the trickiest question facing employers right now and also employees as well about being subject to this technology and what their longstanding rights are in the workplace as well. So that's just a brief overview of where we are with the HR technology market. You know, all studies shows that it's going to be billions and billions of dollars spending increasing. There was one study that showed by 2028 or 2029, employers are going to be spending around 30 billion uh, in HR, AI technology. So it's out there, it's happening, uh, the future like you say, the time is now, but the future is now when it comes to AI. <laughs> I,
0: I love it, um, and you know, I'm struck when when you were talking about uh, how much is out there already, and you know, you said there's uh, there's hundreds, probably thousands uh, of uh, different types of AI tools and programs. You know, getting around as much as you do and speaking to employers, speaking with employees, do you find that that there's still an intimidation? aspect out there that that people are just sort of overwhelmed with information overload maybe intimidated by this whole subject or are you finding in fact that more organizations are in fact using this stuff or diving into it a little bit more than they were even a year ago or six months ago
1: yeah it's a great question it's a little bit of both you know there are some companies out there who are just saying you know we're not at the point, we're not big enough, we're not large enough that we're going to be using this. This is really just for Fortune 500 companies that could afford this at mass scale. But you know, a lot of these AI softwares really help small and medium businesses. And they're designed now um, to be at a cost point where smaller organizations can afford them and actually use them as well. But the same legal li- liability issues, if you're using it on a, a company with 20 employees, is the same if you're using it on a company with 200,000 employees. It's just the, obviously the scale and use of it is differently. So definitely, uh, there's a general, much more of a general awareness of this in the sense a lot of the news we're seeing about AI and chat GPT, um, and all other uses of AI is, is helping the conversation for us here because it's now, um, national news. And as you know, sometimes at the EEOC, it takes in national news event to, Encourage compliance, like we saw with the MeToo movement. You know, after Harvey Weinstein and a lot of CEOs got fired, the sexual harassment policies in the workplace, although it's long been illegal, companies started really looking at that issue and, and putting a lot of compliance resources there. Then, you know, with the, the pay equity push and the pay transparency push across the nation, You know, a lot of that too has been driven since the women's national soccer team, you know, made front page news with their lawsuits. So, you know, sometimes it takes these monumental shifts in the news for corporate corporations to start taking the compliance um, as a priority. So definitely across the board, we're seeing a lot of companies who want to embrace this. They're just not ready yet because they don't have the answers that they're looking for on how to implement these programs. Because at the end of the day, under the current status of U.S. employment discrimination law, as you know, the employer is going to be 100% liable for any decision that the AI tool makes. So I think the hesitancy is only in the in that they need additional questions answered um, to be able to implement this fully.
0: And one of the interesting uh, aspects of where we are now is we sort of have a timeline being developed, particularly uh, over the last year and a half or so through the EEOC. And I want to get into that and get some of your thoughts on that. But I am curious, just from a, I guess, a personal standpoint, uh, Commissioner, uh, you continue to speak and write quite a bit on this topic. What drove your initial and I guess continuing interest in artificial intelligence?
1: Well, I first started um, speaking about this issue publicly in March of 2021. And when I dove into it, I saw that here's a technology that is being developed by very, very smart computer software engineers uh, outside of our space looking to help us solve a problem to eliminate bias, which helps us prevent and remedy employment discrimination, but also some of those softwares you heard before about helping with um, pay compensation, about helping with providing the right opportunity within a potential Employer or your current employer really also helps us promote equal opportunity in the workplace. And as we see technology infiltrate other areas, I just knew it was going to happen here. So I also then saw from my lawyer perspective is that it was already being used out there on a mass scale and with no guidance, no best practices, no general awareness of the potential legal ramifications and no significant enforcement or litigation yet. So when I started raising awareness of this, coming you know from my background, I wanted to see that the best practices and guidance being made in a collaborative effort with all stakeholders involved, not through how we've seen guidance made before, which is through federal law enforcement or through the legal system after the fact. So for this to be able to flourish, to this to actually be... Moving forward in its intended consequences to eliminate bias in the workforce, we all need to get involved, we all need to help, and we all need to make sure we're still at a critical point here now and then before that continued adoption occurs, before that complete mass adoption occurs, that we could still lay out how to comply with the longstanding Employment laws that all these programs are being applicable to. So that's why I'm passionate about it. That's why I got involved because unlike other areas and unlike other egg regulations, which occurs after the fact, that post enforcement in litigation and federal investigation of how guidance is being made, that doesn't help anybody. So that's what I was trying to prevent here.
0: You know, one of the things that, that a lot of us always talked about when we were dealing with social media and and when <laughs> excuse me the proliferation of Of uh, activity and statements on social media. And all the time, we would always say how, you know, it's not about having new laws or new rules uh, uh, when it comes to social media, but the challenge was applying the traditional EEO rules to this new forum. Uh, It wasn't conduct or statements happening at the physical water cooler in the office, but now it's conduct and statements happening at the virtual water cooler. And in some respects, uh, it's sort of the same thing going on here. We're not changing the laws or dealing with new laws when it comes to EEO issues. We're trying to uh, apply EEO laws that have been around now forever to new technologies and uh, new ways of doing HR-related business.
1: And that's 100% right. And that gets lost in a lot of these discussions. That gets lost in, in a lot of equations as we'll talk about you know, what other State cities and countries are doing when it comes to that sort of regulation approach that oh, how do we apply this? Do we need new laws? Do we need l- new regulations there's complete regulatory uncertainty in the meantime implement this in the meantime by this software and i'm not saying that's uh, you know I'm not accusing it, but that's just some of the the mentality when you have that in the situation you just discussed, which has occurred in the past, but there was a resolution for that, and there is a resolution now. No matter what the software is, whether it's being used now or hasn't even been developed yet, and that's applying it to, to longstanding laws. And it's just equating it, you know, analyzing it from here is what this computer system is doing to here's what an HR manager who's a human and their brain is doing. And how do we backtrack if there is discrimination? How do we prove if that this that employment decision was lawful or not? And that just needs to be done with AI. The same way it needs to be done with all employment decisions and we can't lose sight of that. And that allows people to make use these programs more comfortably. It allows them to be developed faster if we apply those long standing laws to it. But that's largely on us to be able to do that.
0: All right, great. And so what I'd like to do is uh, walk through uh, the sort of timeline that I have here from the EEOC from the past year and a half or so uh, and get your comments and and thoughts at at each little milestone point here. So I started October 2021. uh, The EEOC created the Artificial Intelligence and Algorithmic Fairness Initiative. It's a nice sounding uh, title there. What prompted that, and what exactly was that initiative?
1: Well, this was a, a formal initiative announced by the uh, chair EEOC, um, which then made it a commission priority. So prior to this, you know, I was out speaking and writing and discussing this myself. But then, you know, when it became a formal EEOC initiative, which the chair has the power to do. Um, then it really let the world know that this as an agency, not just as an individual commissioner, we're looking at this issue. And we're going to dedicate resources um, both on the compliance side and on the enforcement side to this very important issue. And you know, the stated purpose of this was to guide applicants, employees, employers, and technology vendors in ensuring that these technologies broadly are being fairly and consistent used with um, our equal employment opportunity law. So as part of the initiative. We're going to establish an internal working group on some listening sessions, which there were some gather information um, from the outside world, um, identify some promising practices and then issue uh, technical assistance. So that was the stated purpose of the AI initiative. We saw a lot of other agencies um, not too long after or even before announced similar initiatives, how they're going to be looking at how AI affects the area that they enforce you know, HUD with housing, FDA with medical equipment, uh, Department of Defense with use in military, you know, you name it, there's been a lot of interest across the government to have these initiatives done at the individual agencies.
0: And fast forward about six months uh, after that, we're in May 2022, uh, the commission issued its first guidance, I believe, addressing the use of AI and employment-related decisions. Um, around the same time, the commission... I believe, filed its first lawsuit in this area against a tutoring company based at that point on a rejection or allegations that there was a rejection of applicants uh, in certain age categories through machine-assisted recruitment processes. Um, did, Was that when things started to explode really from the commission standpoint in terms of uh, this guidance being issued and really going out and, and trying to enforce this issue?
1: Yeah, about the lawsuit, uh, the pending litigations I'll state, you know, to the guidance so in may we did put out our first guidance it was a technical assistance document uh, entitled the americans with disability act and the use of software algorithms and artificial intelligence to assess job applicants and employees so this really focused on the americans with disability act and how it can ai can potentially discriminate against job seekers and employees with disabilities. As you know, this was um, fairly low-hanging fruit for us in the sense where outside of retaliation, disability discrimination continues to be one of our top charges across the board. And um, this is a, you know, the ADA and uh, its enforcement is is one of our very important laws to make sure that people with both physical and mental disabilities have that equal opportunity in the workplace. So uh, it was an easy one to take the first crack at, in a sense, and the guidance highlights basically overarching three common ways that employers use of AI decision-making tools can violate the ADA. First, if the employer does not provide a reasonable accommodation that is necessary for a job applicant or employee to be fairly rated and accurately rated by the algorithm. Second, if the employer relies on AI decision tool that intentionally or unintentionally screens out an individual with this disability, even though that individual is able to do the job without the reasonable accommodation. And then third, if an employer adopts an AI tool for use with its job applicants or employees that violates the ADA's restrictions on disability related inquiries and medical examinations, which are always tricky. And as these programs become more digitized, it can suddenly take that information quicker and faster um, than before. In the guidance, we also have some um, practices you can for employers and employees to ask their employer, ask the vendors um on there as well. So this was our really the first document. And it was done in accordance with uh the Department of Justice um civil rights division. And uh so this came out in May. It was our first and so far only uh technical assistance guidance on uh AI in the workplace. You know, for me, I don't at all think that we should have started anywhere else but the ADA. As I said, it really affects a lot of individuals, especially um those trying to enter the workforce with a disability that are going to be subject to these um, very highly, sometimes highly technical, highly digitized tool. You know, my criticism in a sense was that this was not done in an open forum in the sense where it did not go out for uh, comment to the public. And I think like, everything related to this should have much more public involvement, which as I'll discuss in a bit. About the whole ecosystem when it comes to AI, you know, for us just to issue this document without the public seeing it and being able to compliment it, I really think hurt the document. I think in the way there's a lot of accusatory statements towards employers in there about the assumptions of using some of these products, the assumptions that employers are using this in an unlawful way, which is just not true. So if it goes out to public comment, then the public and employers and vendors can say, No, we're not using it that way. Here's how we're using it. Or vendors saying, we're not even developing, you know, products. And I think there was an example in there, um, which I didn't like about keystrokes and, you know, just assuming employers are using keystroke monitoring, you know, employers can write in and say, you know, we're not using this or vendors can say, this is not how it's designed. So that's the really the benefit of having this in open public forum. And, you know, when I come from the wage and hour division at the Department of Labor, Everything we had vast rulemaking authority there, as you know, and, and often do yeah. podcasts on. Everything was done in a, in a public light. Um, every um, rule went out for public comment. And here at the EOC in the past, there's been a lot of guidance that has gone out when we put out religious guidance. When the harassment draft went out during the um, Obama administration, you know, people were able to comment that. And I really think because this is an area where, that is outside of our wheelhouse when it talks about the technology everything being done like guidance like this and anything we do forward needs that input from all the different groups involved
0: and it's interesting because as you said at the start you know you you've been gracious enough to come on here uh, a few times and one of the things that i was really struck by the very first time you came on the podcast is you were talking at that time about how transparency uh, is a big thing for you. And and when you got to the EEOC, one of the things that you really wanted to do was to make things more transparent at the EEOC. And it sounds like, at least for that guidance, uh, you know, on the AI and the ADA, um, that might not have been as transparent a process as you would have liked it to have been.
1: Um, it was not, and, and it could be, and it should be um, moving forward.
0: And, and you also, it's interesting, you just mentioned, uh, you know, how an issue like this is is to some extent outside the wheelhouse when we're talking about technologies. For those who are listening and trying to understand the process when this type of guidance or, or any guidance really comes out of the EEOC, how does that come about? Are there consultants, uh, are there people whose wheelhouse it is within who are consulted for these kinds of issues um, before the guidance goes out?
1: Well, it depends you know there's there's different ways to issue guidance here. The chair issued it as technical assistance guidance, which is not supposed to make new policy. it's just supposed to apply existing um, law and facts um to a situation and you know this is not the first time it's happened we've been uh, we've had litigations against us about when technical guidance should actually cross the threshold to actual um, voted guidance by the commission, or if we even have authority to do so through rulemaking and, and not to get too administrative law here, you know, the <laughs> EOC just has very limited rulemaking authority under Title Seven, And that's how Congress designed this agency and didn't give us that um, vast rulemaking um, authority. So it gets a little thorny and dicey when you're deciding, you know, for the chair to decide what to put to a commission vote versus what is purely technical assistance. But that is really the prerogative of the chair to be able to do that.
0: So let's fast forward then uh, to 2023. Here we are. And January was uh, was an interesting month in this area. Um, it, first in January, uh, the commission published its latest strategic enforcement plan uh, that signaled to the world the commission's intention to look at the issue of AI closely, make sure stakeholders know that enforcement efforts will include uh, talking about the application of discrimination laws to the use of AI tools, and then... Uh, At the end of the month on January 31st, the commission held a public hearing, uh, again, a long name, but I'll give it out. It entitled Navigating Employment Discrimination in AI and Automated Systems, a New Civil Rights Frontier. Um, I would love your thoughts first on, you know, what was the purpose or the goal of that public hearing in January? And then, you know, secondly, do you think it accomplished what the goal was? So the
1: goal of the hearing was related to the initiative, which I briefly mentioned before about, you know, having listening sessions, having a a formal public commission, hearing for us to gather that information. And it was a full day hearing. The hearing is completely uh, available on YouTube. You could find it on EEOC.gov or YouTube, uh, EEOC's YouTube page, and you can watch the entire thing. So, you know, again, I, I thought this was really a lost opportunity. If you listen to my opening statement um i I really thought that this would have been a chance for everyone in the ecosystem to be involved Everyone like I just said, people who are outside of our wheelhouse mainly labor and employment lawyers, maybe unions maybe mainly staffing agencies and civil rights groups right I mean that's just generally our world before this um you know we we did not see the entire tech ecosystem when it comes to AI and let me just explain what that means and how we can successfully. Move forward with this AI initiative, not just here at the EOC, but across governments and sort of, you know, what I have envisioned. And I've been saying for the beginning, how we're going to make this work, how we're actually going to make um, guidance, decisions, investigations, litigations, rules that actually make sense. And um, like I just said before, our world was pretty small, right? Like unions, employers, civil rights groups. Now, because we're playing in the tech space, it's a much broader world. And that starts. With the investors, the people who the venture capitalists and the money who that's going into AI. And as you know, if you see on the news, if you say AI in Silicon Valley, you get hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know, maybe that specific, but um, that's what it seems like to people. And you know, those people who are investing their hard-earned money into a startup software, they don't want to invest that money for a program. For a startup to build software that discriminates, for a a program that then causes the end users lawsuits. So, you know, the first entry point is for these investors. And how do we equip them, who are who are not civil rights attorneys, who are not involved in this space? You know, they're finance people. How do we arm them with the questions to ask those smart tech engineers who are going to and entrepreneurs who want to build these products? questions on how they're going to comply with these laws and how they're going to build it as a part of their, you know, culture, you know, both from a business perspective and from a coding perspective into the products they're building. And, you know, that's a different language there. So, you know, that's the first step. The second step is then the tech vendors who again are not in our world because they're, they're developing tech products. And how do we then in their language, give them the information when they're, doing their codes, when they're doing their algorithms, when they're building their models, um, how do they know what we're going to be looking at and what we care about when it comes to the results of their product? Because I'm sure a lot of these very smart PhDs are not going to want to build algorithms that violate civil rights laws. And how do we then speak to them in their language, which is different than the finance language, which is different than the lawyer language. This is more the entrepreneurial and the actual tech side. And I, you know, to me, I think that's going to be working with a lot of uh, the universities that are training the coders with the ethicists in this area who know the, the law and the tech language to be able to then um, teach them as they're building these programs to be compliant with the potential uses for these products. So then it's the employers who have, I've always said face the toughest situation here because they're the ones that need to be able to then ask these vendors who have created a product. And normally they're used to buying software products um, by just, you know, here's the sales pitch for software generally outside of this space or even in this space has been, here's a product that's going to make your company, save your company money. It's going to make decisions faster. And in our case, it's going to make them. Without bias, and we don't need to get into picking apart those claims. We talked about it on the other podcast. Yes. So, how do you then be able to push back and say, you know, well, how are you going to make sure it doesn't discriminate? And I understand that you've done testing, and you know, you you've paid consultants and other vendors to show that this product doesn't discriminate. But how is it going to work in my workforce? How is it going to work for different job descriptions, for different applicant pools, et cetera, et cetera? And you know, there's. Um, I've, I've spoken about some of those other questions and written about that. Um, so that's that's what the employers need. And then the second part for what employers need is when they buy the system, you know, what do they have to do internally before ever letting it make that employment decision. So that's the third part of the ecosystem. And then finally, and importantly, is the employee who is being subject to this technology. You know, what do they need to know to make sure that they feel comfortable, Using these, you know, being subject to these softwares in accordance with the long standing laws that apply to them. And what obligations do they need from their employers or what rights do they have? And it's getting more complicated with some of the data equations in there um, about the use of their data and what they're being subject to when you get into facial recognition and recording and storage and all that. So, you know, that's, that's our world here, which is different than the world I just, that we're used to. So for me, for this hearing, it was a missed opportunity in the sense where we could have had everyone there and everyone could have told the commission. The commissioners, because you had all four of us there live um, online of what, you know, how we solve these issues, what those issues are, because nobody is inviting the EEOC into those VC pitch meetings. Nobody's inviting the EEOC when, (laughs) you know, the engineers are sitting there coding. Nobody's inviting the EEOC in the sales meetings, right? Nobody's inviting the EEOC when they're testing it. Uh, you know, internally, so we're not there. And this is an opportunity for very publicly for everyone, you know, for us to hear it for the first time in a situation where that dialogue is encouraged. Instead, what we got was, you know, more of the same and what we normally see out of hearings in uh, Washington, D.C. So I think there were 12, um, 12 witnesses 10 of them represented employee side groups. Um, A vast majority of them were academics and I'm not criticizing them. They they provided very helpful testimony and I, I know a lot of them and they're very highly respected, but that's just one side of the equation. And what we heard was from a lot of people who've never actually been subject to an AI tool, who've never developed an AI tool, who don't have any responsibility to buy an AI tool, who have no skin in the game if the AI tool discriminates. It's just more of that hype, you know hypothetical academic trade group discussion and there is a time and place for that but this could have really been the opportunity to do something different and it was a missed opportunity in that regard and I was very vocal about it in my opening statement because the vendors that I've you know spoken to and a lo- to their credit have been reaching out because they want to do this right they don't want to buy a pro- sell a product that discriminates Right. They don't want to cause that harm to their, their customers and right. they would have been willing to testify. We would have really had for the first time the HR tech vendor community, you know, live under the lights. It was virtual under the zoom. And then the, the, the customers out there, the employees out there who are being subject to this really could have seen it in action and gotten a lot of those potential insurances or importantly, seeing where those weak points are, where we grilled them on as EEOC commissioners for them to go back and drive that change um, through this hearing. And that didn't happen. And we got more of the same of this hypothetical academic uh, DC speak. And I've been very vocal against that. That's not going to move the ball forward. And that's not what we need from our perspective now to actually make this all work from all sides.
0: Well, for lack of a better term, do you see an opportunity for a do-over, uh, another hearing where we can sort of address what perhaps the uh, January 1st hearing didn't accomplish?
1: Um, I hope so. That's, uh, you know, the, as, as you know, uh, at this agency, the chair controls uh, the agenda very much like, uh, in the House and Senate, the the leader, the majority leader get to control what the uh, senators and congressmen do. Um, very much like we see at the, uh, NLRB, you know, the, the cases that are going forward, there's a chair of the, of the board. There's a general counsel. Um, and, uh, secretary of labor gets to control what goes out. The wage and hour administrator controls what opinion letters are being, um, sent. So, um, outside of my control, but I've certainly been very vocal and this is how we are going to make it work. And I just know all those different groups are willing to take that scrutiny from us and we should encourage that.
0: And we expect in terms of uh, further activity, uh, just to uh, piggyback on that for a moment, is there anything that we can expect or that you can um, comment on that uh, we can expect from the EEOC, whether it's further technical assistance, further guidance, uh, anything else coming out of the EEOC uh, in the next you know few months, next year on uh, AI issues?
1: You know, I would imagine so. I don't have the answer to that. And it's a lot about what the priorities are here. Um, as you are talk about and we'll be talking about with some of the nominees for the EEOC, whether it's the, um, third commissioner to replace former chair Janet Dillon or the general counsel, um, that certainly will change the dynamic of what policies and procedures, um, are coming forward. But look, it's not going away. It's in our draft strategic enforcement plan. It's in there and it's going to be a priority of the agency. Um, over the next uh, five years at least. So I would imagine we will be seeing a lot more there. And I just hope um, that it is done now in a more collaborative, public, open forum where everyone gets their say because that's how we're going to have guidance that the vendors will comply with, employers will comply with, and employees can understand.
0: And uh, before I you know, end with uh, some takeaways, and it's really hard and I'm not breaking news to you or any of the listeners, it's hard not to be so technical and, you know, in some respects get into a lot of the weeds and in other respects, you know, talk really broadly about this topic, but I always try to keep this practical for the listeners uh, and for employers in particular, as much as possible. There is a lot out there and you started talking about that. And we've got not only the EEOC uh, acting on this in some respect, but we've got a lot of States out there, New York, is an example of that. We've been reading and seeing a lot uh, about their AI-related uh, legislation, uh, which in some respects keeps getting pushed from an effective date standpoint. Uh, but there's a lot out there and a lot of jurisdictions are doing things about this. You have a, I'd love your comment on what's going out uh, on out there generally when it comes to proposed proposals from other legislative bodies, other agencies. Do you have a thought on that?
1: I do. I look, as I've said before, and you and I have discussed, you know, we should be anyone who wants to help out in this space. We could certainly use the help. And for states, cities, local governments, foreign countries to be committing to taking on this issue, which is going to be around for a long time, we should commend them for their efforts. But at the same time, it risks not only this patchwork of different regulations. Based upon states, if they aren't coming out with something completely new and innovative, which I've argued is not necessary, then all it's going to do is really cause chaos and cause confusion. And what we're seeing with with New York with the with the issues from employers trying to comply with it is saying, okay, if you you're now requiring a pre-deployment audit or yearly audit or or disclosure of you know the results of the audit, well, what does that mean? What is that? Ultimate standard in testing you're going to use because if you tell employers what the test is to use, then they're going to use it, right? And you know, in this area, especially when you're testing for disparate impact, which is largely what these pre-employment audit testings are going to accomplish, there's many tests. You know, there's uh, from the EEOC's 1978 Uniform Guidelines and Employment Employment uh, Procedures. It's a word jumble. Um, easier to say, or the four fifths rule, you know, it's just one of many testing that the EEOC uses sometimes and then doesn't use other times. And, you know, being involved in these types of cases, it just becomes a battle of experts where each side just uses the test that's most beneficial to them. So, you know, when, whether it's Europe, whether it's New York saying, well, we're going to require this testing. And then the only testing is looking back at the EEOC, you know, you know, that's, that's not as helpful in the sense where, well, what were you actually envisioning when you're acquiring this new testing? Or you know even the disclosure requirements. What level of disclosures are you going to have to tell the employees or the public? Are you going to say that for a disclosure for these, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in, in New York, for these um, quote in Europe the high risk systems which they're classifying employment as. What does that mean? Is it saying you know we found some discrepancies in our model and fix it or our program? horribly discriminates against pick your protected characteristic, right? And you know, that's certainly going, you know, that level of disclosure is tricky as well. But here's the the, the major takeaway from this is that it is a distraction where we talked about earlier that there's no loss, that if you're using this right now, because the New York proposal hasn't gotten effects, because the EU is still trying to push it forward, because Illinois is only dealing with facial recognition, then We're okay for the time being. We could use some of these more aggressive softwares, or even if we do have to do these, you know, artists like New York or California one day would like to require. Well, it's only going to be on certain protected characteristics, and we don't need to do that testing in advance for other protected characteristics. As you know, the EEOC law applies in every state and all the territories, and our laws, you know, require compliance. And to ensure that nobody is being discriminated against based on those protected characteristics, and everyone's getting equal opportunity. So if you're going to then be doing an audit because New York tells you to do an audit on two protected characteristics or three protected characteristics, are you just going to ignore the other ones at the EEOC? Is going to matter as well. So, you know, just boiling it down, employers right now don't need to wait for new legislations to go into effect. There's nothing preventing them from doing these same pre-deployment audits using long-standing discrimination law, and that's by looking at the results, which is all an EEOC investigator who's not a computer scientist. I'm not a computer scientist. You're not a computer scientist. I can guarantee that. But you do know results, and you do know how to show if find if there was employment discrimination. And you do know how to backtrack from there. Was it an individual who was just discriminating with their own bias? Or was it based upon a policy or procedure that had that discriminatory effect? In a sense, sense, using AI makes it more transparent because right now, if we see discrimination and it's from one hiring manager, All we're left with doing is deposing them and hopefully, you know, they tell us that they discriminate, which of course never happens. But, you know, with this, the AI and transparency of it is that, well, now you have clicks and records of what went in the data set, what went in the algorithm, who had access to it. So in a sense, it could become more transparent there, but you don't need to wait for the EEOC. You don't need to wait for other government agencies to, um, to come knocking to do or require you to do these audits. Just like right now, a lot of companies for a long time have done wage and hour audits for overtime and minimum wage have done misclassification audits for independent contractor versus employee, or now we're seeing a big push, especially with the pay transparency laws related to pay equity audits. Right. And you can do that internally before any investigation, before any government tells you to, before any trial lawyer sends you a demand letter and and fix it. And then that helps the employer compliance, but also helps redress any discrimination. And why that employers aren't thinking the same exact thing for artificial intelligence, is sort of, I blame on the distraction in the news, whether it's Congress grilling tech CEOs on algorithms or, you know, oh, New York keeps getting pushed, um, or, you know, there's proposals in California, New Jersey across the board. um, That doesn't matter. What matters now is you can be doing this yourself based upon EEOC's All the different laws we enforce here—you know how to do that in other contexts. Just do it here.
0: That's fascinating, and I mean that's your last point is is a great one. It's a matter of catching up and having the mindset that companies and employers finally got when it came to, as you said, wage an hour and misclassification audits, and then pay equity audits. And uh, you're right; this should be no different um, uh, in terms of being able to do some self audit before you find yourself. Uh, on the wrong side of a particular case or enforcement action. That's right. So uh, I'm very mindful of your time, uh, and I don't want to keep you, but the last thing I did want to ask you, at least for today, uh, before we hopefully get you as a four-time guest, We've we've said a lot in this limited amount of time. If we wanted to leave employers with you know one or two primary takeaways from this discussion, and I thought your last answer really I hit the nail on the head. Uh, what kind of takeaways should we leave people with uh, from this discussion?
1: Well, you know I I say this uh, nonstop all the time is that you just have to do your due diligence when it comes to not only vetting AI in the front end, but once you buy it before you actually let it make an employment decision. So, you know, for employers, it's really that it's the hardest in a sense where you have to ask those front end questions before you buy it and then internally do some of the things we just talked about as well, because just generically across the board, as you know, in the EEOC's mission is to prevent workplace discrimination because it just imposes heavy human social and financial costs to everyone. So, you know, my, my takeaways are always the same when you're talking about AI in the workplace. You know, our laws are old, but they're not outdated, that they apply to equal strength made um, with AI in 2023 and beyond for all those programs that are out there or the programs that haven't, that ChatGPT hasn't made yet to they do the same exact way to somebody making a decision in the 1960s. And then always with AI, watch out for, employers have to watch out for both the discriminatory uses of it or the discriminatory outcomes. And you know, in our last podcast, we gave a lot of examples of that because liability is going to be the same um, either way. So you know, th- those are always my, my takeaways that, um, that intentionally uh, misuse of it or not uh, based upon that, in, that data set discrimination is going to cause that same liability for employers. And, and that's the key aspect always.
0: EEOC Commissioner Keith Sonderling uh, it is always such a great pleasure to have you come and join us Uh, your insight is so valuable and I really appreciate you coming on again to share it.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Fascinating as always, I appreciate the Commissioners insight and once again appreciate so much Commissioner Sonderling coming on to the podcast uh, as often as he does. Well, I hope you liked part one of what is a two-part episode. You heard directly from the EEOC commissioner on the issue of artificial intelligence. In part two in our next episode, you are going to hear from someone in the community, an expert in the community, talking about her perspective on artificial intelligence and specifically on the issue that we ended with today That being the kinds of things you want to look for as an organization, perhaps, when you are doing self-audits in this area. Until the next time, I hope you and all of your labor is productive.